Marty McFly drives off in the DeLorean and Doc Brown exclaims, A crash of drums, a flash of light, my time machine flies out of sight. It worked, it works. All that remaineth are two fiery streaks, and of triumph all creation speaks. And you know one thing. The king of pop Shakespeare is writing again. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In 2013, Quirk Books began releasing a quixotic but remarkably clever series written by a marketing executive from Portland, Oregon. The books reimagined the Star Wars films as if they had been written by William Shakespeare. Not only an iambic pentameter, but featuring all the other literary devices we associate with Shakespeare's work. The writer was Ian Desher. But for all its vastness, Star Wars is a finite universe. And so, Ian has had to turn from a galaxy far, far away to a world much closer to home. In 2019, he published the first two books in a series called Pop Shakespeare that transforms the scripts of other classic movies into Shakespearean-style drama. Those two books are titled William Shakespeare's Get Thee Back to the Future and William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls. We talked with Ian in 2015, and we've invited him back to talk about his process and just where he comes up with his monumentally dexterous devices. We call this podcast, What Imitation You Can Borrow. Ian Desher is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I was going to ask you why you chose these two films, and then I thought, nah, it's obvious. They're the best and the second best movies ever made. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. Dad, dad, daddy-o. So if you're from Africa, why are you white? Oh, my God, Karen, you can't just ask people why they're white. Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. They are both great movies. Yeah, I was thinking that I've watched these movies periodically um, over the years, and they seem to have, they just hold up. You know, they seem to have just an an enduring timelessness to them in a way. Yeah, both of them. I mean, watching Back to the Future, which was made almost 35 years ago, uh, it is still a movie that holds up and feels it feels timeless in a way. And I've always wondered if that's because most of the movie takes place in 1955. Although you get some scenes in the 80s that feel a little 80s, not over overly much. Um, Most of the movie is in 1955, which was the past for, ni- for in 1985, and it's still the past for us now. So uh, I think that helps with its timelessness. And Mean Girls feels, I mean, like it could have been made this year. Exactly. Um, I guess to, to get to the Shakespeare part of this, I wondered if you're choosing titles because you hear something in them uh, that says to you, you know, this one would work in iambic pentameter. I think there sort of is a... There's almost sort of a formula for choosing which films to dig into. And it has to be a good story, and it has to have rich characters, and ideally has to have some lines that are fairly well-known by the fans of these movies. But I think just about any movie that has 
uh, really good characters and a really strong storyline would be a worthy selection for the Pop Shakespeare series. Yeah, and, and certainly with Mean Girls, you have that dynamic between all the the girls, and also just right out of the gates, you have uh, Katie, the Lindsay Lohan character. She seems a natural Miranda from The Tempest, and and in fact, you have some lines that speak to that. Oh, brave new world that she's entering of American Public High School. And then you have Regina as this Catherine from Taming of the Shrew. Sure. It was a choice I made early on with Mean Girls to say, uh, unlike my other uh, Shakespearean adaptations where different characters borrow from anywhere and everywhere in Shakespeare, I decided that each of these characters in Mean Girls was actually going to have her parallel in Shakespeare. So Katie is my Miranda and Regina is my Kate. And that added a new sort of barrier around what I could do. But it was also really fruitful because it helps uh, enrich the characters in Mean Girls um, so that they are sort of more deeply Shakespearean, if that makes sense. Exactly. And then you you even have Regina's mom, the Amy Poehler role. What is the 411? What has everybody been up to? That she's Lady Macbeth. She says, screw your courage to the stucky place. Which I felt a little bit bad about because uh, Amy Poehler is so sweet and Lady Macbeth is not. Uh, but I figured that anybody who uh, who had raised it. Regina, uh, you know, maybe had a, a dark side to her. <laughs> and there's also this built-in Shakespeare element to Mean Girls. There's the, the Julius Caesar riff. Why should Caesar get to stomp around like a giant while the rest of us try not to get smushed under his big feet? Gretchen goes nuts in class. Right, right. Uh, And you have loads of fun with it in the book. In fact, could you read that for us? Sure. So uh, this is Gretchen's line when she's realizing that she's been sort of betrayed by Regina. Here's what she says. Oh, when I am again in English class, I know what is the report that I shall make. We study Caesar and his mighty acts. I'll lay him low. For who is Caesar, eh? And wherefore should great Caesar be allowed to stomp and lumber like a giant brute whilst we do hide from his enormous feet, attempting fearfully to stay unscathed? Whence cometh all the honors he hath earned? Consider Brutus. Is he not as fine, as smart, as likable as Caesar, too? Brutus is just as cute as Caesar. Okay, Brutus is just as smart as Caesar. People totally like Brutus just as much as they like Caesar. When did it happen that a single person became the boss of everyone around? Tis not what our proud Rome doth stand for, nay. Because that's not what Rome is about. We should totally just stab Caesar! We should therefore stab Caesar, stab and stab, and let his blood flow down in righteous streams. Gretchen Wieners had cracked. I like the stab and stab and stab. Um, Yeah, so you you read these books in schools, right? That must have got a big reaction. Yes, so I've... It's interesting with Mean Girls. it's, it's It's a movie about high school, and uh, most high schoolers in the schools I visited have seen it, Um, and yet there are still some passages that I find myself a little hesitant to read aloud in high school uh, because of some of the content, you know. Oh, really? Like what? Oh, I mean, like uh, Coach Carr, uh, when he's giving his sex ed lesson, this is a speech that I would read, you know, before an adult audience. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Remember this, tis best to not have sex, lest pregnancy and death on you befall. Have neither sex with partner standing up, nor sex in the position missionary. Have neither sex in canine-style fashion, nor sex involving mouths or derrieres. Have neither sex, and neither have ye fun, nor heavy petting. This is also out. Avow to me ye shall have none of sex. Now, whoever shall take rubbers plenty. So... It's that kind of thing where it's it's like, I, I feel funny doing that in front of a high school crowd. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> um, but you wrote it. So do you have a target demographic? I mean, are you writing with a particular audience? You know, a, a Shakespeare 
geek or, you know, are you picturing yourself at a certain age? I think I am picturing myself to an extent because it's that person who loves Shakespeare but also loves pop culture and uh, sort of making fun of pop culture and having a good time with it. And especially with my early books, those are the books that I wish existed and therefore it seemed natural that I would be the one who wrote them. Yes, I think it really gets to something interesting about Shakespeare, which is still thought of as high culture now, but, you know, originally was very low culture. So that mm-hmm. that lowbrow, highbrow thing, that your mashup really hits some sweet spot there, I think. Yeah, well, and that's the interesting thing, right? And that's why I love that I get the chance to bring these books to schools and, and that some, there are teachers who tell me that they are using these to introduce their kids to Shakespeare because... I know that I was somewhat unusual in being a high school student who fell in love with Shakespeare really early on. And that's not the case for everyone. And I think there is this sort of fear when when students approach Shakespeare because he has this reputation for being difficult to understand and being highbrow, as you say. And the reality is that he was writing the popular entertainment of his day. And I think if he were alive today, he would be writing Mean Girls and Back to the Future and, and things like that. Mean Girls is sort of if you took all of Shakespeare's best female characters and stuck them in a room together, Mean Girls is kind of what would happen. Um, <laughs> and so hopefully my book's give kids a a chance to experience Shakespeare a little bit and see, hey, this could actually be fun, so that when they're jumping into real Shakespeare, it's less of a deep dive and more of something that feels familiar, and they can start to sense uh, how entertaining Shakespeare is. Well, is that why then you have in the back of your books this kind of little reader's guide where you explain what specifically that you've copied or adapted from Shakespeare? Yes, exactly. I mean, the reader's guide is really for... Anyone who's new to Shakespeare or just new to this language to get some idea for what is this, what have I done, it allows them to in some ways sort of look under the hood of what I as an author am am doing in terms of different literary devices that I'm trying to use that Shakespeare also used and uh, it's whetted their appetite for Shakespeare. Yeah, let's talk about some of the devices and some of the techniques. For instance, rhyming couplets at the ends of scenes. Um, And just to give an example, and we haven't talked about Back to the Future yet, at the end of the scene where Doc figures out that Marty has disrupted the time-space continuum and that they have to make sure that George and Lorraine meet at the high school dance, Doc says, no more shall we be led by happenstance, make certain that he takes her to the dance. And, (laughs) I, you know, I read these and I, I remember all of the times I've been in the theater and they hit the end of the scene with that rhyming couplet and I don't even hear the couplet. I don't even hear the words. To me, it's just like, okay, they're getting off the stage now. <laughs> is, that, right. is, that, is that what uh, kind of the function it serves for you? Most of the time, I think the rhyming couplet is tying a little bow on the scene, you know, in, in some way. And it is in some way sort of summing up what's happened and maybe looking a little bit forward to what's going to happen. Early on, when I first started writing these books, this was one of the many things that I, I said to myself, Shakespeare did this, and I want to make sure as a way of honoring him that I'm trying to be consistent. And speaking of rhyming, rhyming how do you choose when to make something rhyme or almost rhyme? Most of the time, my rhymes are only happening in the couplets at the end of the scenes. And then there are sometimes when I'm including a character who often it's a chorus type of character. And, and I think that actually comes from the very first set of chorus lines that I wrote, um, which were 
the yellow crawl that goes up the screen at the start of Star Wars became a Shakespearean sonnet coming out of the voice of the chorus. And because it was in sonnet form, therefore, it had to rhyme. And so, therefore, every time the chorus came back then, the chorus was rhyming. And speaking of the Star Wars books... um a lovely thing in the in in those is that you put in soliloquies to give voice to characters whose voices we don't hear in the films. For instance, uh, you gave soliloquies to R two D two, and and when I got to these books, I thought, oh well, that's not going to happen here. But you do do it in Back to the Future. You give a, a soliloquy to uh, Einstein, the dog, in a footnote, which was fun, right. and you also give the Libyan terrorists uh, a soliloquy. Oh my God. They found me. I don't know how, but they found me. In the movie, Doc Brown says, The Libyans! The Libyans! You know, these are scary people who are just pure villains. They come to do bad things, and they don't get... I mean, they say a few phrases back and forth to each other, but nothing in English. There's nothing to suggest that these are anything but one-dimensional bad guys. Right, right? and that's what terrorists Uh, were. In 1985, in popular culture. Yeah, that's just exactly, how you did it. Yes. But you, your terrorist goes full-on Shylock. And in fact, why, could you read that for us? I think that's great. Sure. This is the uh, the Libyan uh, after... There are two Libyans who enter in, in a van, and um, this is uh, what one Libyan says. When ye behold me, see no enemy, and neither let thy bias typecast me and call me monster, villainous, and crude. My homeland, which I love, is quite a marvel, a culture beautiful and flourishing. Our Tuareg music sends our feet to dance. Our pipes resound in stirring melodies, with drums that mark the beating of our hearts. How I love feasts of shorba and bazine, prepared the way my family did eat them, made from tomatoes red as summer sun. Our country is a home to the Sahara, the desert of a thousand tales and songs, whose vast forbidding sandbanks are renowned. My country's skies are bluer than the ocean, and sunlight beameth on Aleppo pine. But other lands have sunlight too. Moreover, the skies are everywhere as blue as mine. Oh, hear my song, thou god of all the nations, a song of peace for their land and for mine. Nay, call me not an enemy, my friend, for I am one who'd gladly welcome peace. Yet when the time for peace hath fled and gone, when others do betray us wrongfully, shall we not act? Hath not a Libyan eyes? Hath not a Libyan his hands and organs, dimensions, senses, passions, and affections? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, and subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, both warmed and cooled too, by the same winter and the same summer as yourselves? If you prick us, do we not bleed? Or if you tickle us, do we not laugh? Yea, if you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? How did that come to you, that idea? I needed to give some sort of voice to the fact that these are real people. And to me, it's sort of this sense that there are two sides to every story. Uh, and yes, the movie paints them as, I mean, they, they were collecting plutonium and they were intending, they were making bombs with it. Dr. Brown was hired to do that. But still, it's this sense of these are people who have real histories and real pasts and a real homeland that they love. And you also give a bit of King Lear to the Libyans. It, it plays off the dialogue in, in the actual movie after the terrorist shoots uh, Doc, Marty screams. No! And you wrote, Marty, nay, bastard base, Libyan, 
Why bastard? Wherefore base? Right. And that one is sort of a uh, a favorite of mine, I would say, when the word bastard comes up in a screenplay to be able to quote Edmund back at them. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, hey, no, nobody <laughs> likes being called a bastard. Why would I? Uh, so, yeah, to give a little bit of that sense, I, I think uh, it's, it's kind of always appropriate when someone's called a bastard. Yeah, they kind of handed that one to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep, yep. That's right. Um, You also use a rhetorical device called anaphora, and that is the repetition of a word or a phrase at the beginning of successive clauses uh, for emphasis. And and one place that you do it is with Lorraine, Marty's mom, when she's reminiscing about the enchantment beneath the sea night. And she says, first evening of romance, first memories together, first moments of a long life. And another good example is in Mean Girls when Damien who is um, Janice's friend and sidekick, and he talks about how much he loves pink. And this is one of those iconic moments in the film, too. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Oh, my God. Okay, you have to do it, okay? And then you have to tell me all of the horrible things that Regina says. Regina seems sweet. Regina George is not sweet. She's a scum-sucking road horse. She ruined my life. She's fabulous, but she's evil. Hey, get out of here. Oh, my God, Danny DeVito, I love your work. Why do you hate her? What do you mean? Regina, you seem to really hate her. Yes. What's your question? Well, my question is, why? Regina started this rumor that Jenna's... Damien! Shall we not? Now, look, this isn't about hating her, okay? I just think that it would be like a fun little experiment if you were to hang out with them and then tell us everything that they say. What do we even talk about? Hair products. Ashton Kutcher. Is that a band? Can you just do it, please? Okay, fine. Do you have anything pink? Yes. Maybe can you read that Damien's little pink bit? Yeah, so he says, uh, "Pink is the pigment of a welcome soul. Pink is the cheek that blusheth when in love. Pink is the underside of newborn feet. Pink is the lush camellia on the bush." And then he goes on to say, "And thou wouldst deck thyself in luscious pink, then Damien shall be thy source and guide." <laughs> it has a very Damien flavor. How, how do you uh, choose what to use in Afro, and what are you going for with it? It's often a moment where I want to emphasize something about what a character has just said. You know, in that that case is a perfect example because Damien is talking about his love of pink. And in the movie, I don't remember what his exact line is. And I want my pink shirt back! This idea of pink, to me, uh, rewriting it, it feels like, oh, it needs some sort of uh, additional emphasis. And so let's have him wax poetic for a moment about pink and how much he loves it. And anaphora is often a really good device for that kind of thing. Well, so you started this whole endeavor with Star Wars, which is not a comedy. And here you have these two books, these two films, which are comedies, both of them, really. Mean Girls in a different way than, than Back to the Future. There's a rhythm to comedy and there's a rhythm to Shakespeare. How compatible are they? Or how compatible did you find them? I mean, in general, I find them pretty compatible. There are, um, in general, you know, if if you have uh, sparring dialogue between two people in a comedy, that's something that works very well in Shakespeare. You know, one-liners often work well in Shakespeare. There are moments, I would say, where where in translating something into iambic pentameter, you lose the sense of something in a comic scene that is in in a modern film. But generally, I think it it works. Well, I was going to say, it's really hard. I mean, one of the most iconic lines from Mean Girls is stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. You put it in iambic pentameter, and it reads, Nay, Gretchen, fetch shall never catch. Stop hosting an event no one attends. Admirable try. (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. I mean, it, I, mean right. I read that and I thought, it is hard to make bitchy things snap in iambic pentameter. Right, exactly. And so that's one where it's just hard to get the exact same zing. Um, and so I tried to, you know, sort of spice it up with the line about hosting an event that nobody attends, you know, is sort of this added little way to frame what she's saying. But but you're right, it does lack that sort of zinger quality How, that it, it has in the movie. Did you tinker with that line a lot? Uh, yes, there are. It's funny. Some lines just come so easily and so naturally, and other lines I will sit there and agonize over. What came naturally? Can you think of an example? Oh, I mean... Uh, I would say the very last line of Back to the Future, when I was a kid, I remember watching Back to the Future and rewinding over and over Christopher Lloyd's last line, where we're going, we don't need roads, right? It's just such a cool line, and then the DeLorean <laughs> flies off. And uh, yeah. But my uh, retelling of it, which says, be ready for audacious episodes. Whither we go, we have no need of roads. That one, I would say, came pretty quickly, and it was probably because I'd been thinking about it for years. (laughs) It does make me curious, though, if in writing these books that you found things that are funny to you in a new way because of the Shakespeare. Yes. uh, Whenever I'm writing a soliloquy, those are definitely moments where I'm seeing a character in a new light or I'm appreciating something in a new way because I'm digging in deeper on it. It's almost like... It's, I guess it's like I'm finding material where I didn't realize there was material before. Can you think of an example? Um, well, even something like um, in Back to the Future, George McFly is an aspiring writer in 1955. Uh, and, of course, in the new version of 1985 that he goes back to, he is a successful writer. I had never actually read this uh, – or I'm sorry, had not watched Back to the Future – as an author before coming back to this movie to write this book. And so the way he talks about his insecurities about people reading his writing all of a sudden struck me with new force. And so rather than just translate his lines into iambic pentameter, I felt free in the Shakespearean context to give him some longer lines and and sort of elaborate on his feelings. And so he gets this little speech that also... It's one of the Easter eggs that I've thrown in because it's an acrostic speech. So what his lines in the movie make me think of is what I think many, if not all, writers feel, which is this sense of imposter syndrome, right? So I gave him a speech where the lines, the first letter of each line, spell out imposter syndrome. If I should let a reader see my tale, my secret visions and my fantasies, pretending it is worthy of their time or that they might enjoy the world I build, such venture would be dangerous indeed. To write or to create is to be brave. Each work of art an act of courage, too. Releasing it to critics is too far. Say that on reading it, they said, Aha! You are no writer, nay, you are a fraud. No publisher will ever look on this, declare it finely writ, and print the drivel. Relinquish all thy dreams, you worthless rogue, or you shall surely be a laughingstock. Methinks the harsh rejection would destroy me, eviscerated by opinion's blade. Well, that is very obscure, that whole bit about the first letters uh, spelling out imposter. That is that is really funny. I mean, I, I, you're anticipating my question, which is that you are so deep into the wordplay and the, and the references between Shakespeare and, and the movies that I can imagine you getting very caught up in your own cleverness. Uh, does that you know what I mean? Does does that ever happen? Absolutely, yeah. You know, you just can't help but pat yourself on the back. There are definitely times. Um, and I would say the very first time it happened was when I was writing William Shakespeare's Star Wars, and 
I wrote my first ever scene between two characters that was not in the movie at all, and it's these two stormtroopers who are standing outside, sort of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of thing, almost, you know, where they one of them has figured out what's going on, and the other one tells him to calm down and don't get these conspiracy theories in your head, essentially. Uh, and then they get called inside, and, and they're killed, right? So, And after I wrote that, I remember kind of giggling to myself and asking my wife, my wife to read it, and she was like, that's nice, honey, because she doesn't care about Star Wars. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, so there, there are those moments, right? There's an example in, um, in my most recent uh, Star Wars book. I have the Codebreaker, who is a minor character in the movie, but is sort of a James Bond-esque kind of character. Uh, he has this speech where, again, it's an acrostic speech, there are two things going on in the speech. It's an acrostic speech that spells international man of mystery uh, down the left-hand side. And each line of his speech uses the title of a James Bond movie. So I start with uh, Dr. No and work my way all the way down to Spectre. And that's the kind of thing where, yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of a sense after I finish of of like, okay, good job. Good job. That was That was well done. I'm getting such a window into your psyche. (laughs) (laughs) Into my nerdy, geeky world. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, what other Shakespearean-esque adaptations have have you considered? Pulp Fiction, I hope? Uh, Pulp Fiction could be a lot of fun. Um, The the one that I sort of dream about doing uh, is The Princess Bride, as one one of those movies that I grew up with. And I think you could have such fun. Um, Yeah, I, I have a friend who told me for years that he thinks I should do William Shakespeare's The Godfather. And so this year for his birthday in August, he's a very good friend. Uh, I have written it just for him. Uh, oh, so that, oh, was a, that was a fun one. Uh, he'll have the, uh, the only edition of that in the world. Well, so Ian, what's next? On October 1st, I have a new book coming out called Trump, which is a uh, Shakespearean telling of the first two years of the Trump presidency. No. Uh, it is co-authored with a man who goes by the pen name Jacopo Delacerzia, and uh, he and I worked on this together in sort of a flurry of madness uh, <laughs> in the uh, early part of this year, and Corkbooks is putting it out in October. Um, yeah. And so I imagine we're going to see a lot of Julius Caesar in there. What else? I mean, what were, uh, what yes, did you leap uh, some, to immediately? Uh, certainly Caesar, certainly Titus, Macbeth, a Macbeth. good amount. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Titus, maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, there's sprinklings of uh, uh, Lear, certainly. Uh, there's, there's sprinklings of a lot of different Shakespeare in there, of course. But uh, it was uh, a lot of fun to write and um, certainly something different than what I've done before. Wow. Okay. Well, McTrump, I can't wait to read that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there are, again, it's that combination of what has good characters, what has a good storyline. Yeah. Well, now whenever you go see a movie, do you immediately turn all the dialogue into iambic pentameter in your head? Uh, I definitely notice if there is naturally what I call naturally occurring iambic pentameter in a movie. So if a character says a line and it happens to be an iambic pentameter, I notice it. And, you know, usually if I'm watching that movie with my family, I'll say, hey, that was iambic pentameter. I also do it in conversation. Like if one of my kids says something and it, you know, hey, son, that was iambic pentameter. And they roll their eyes and say, yeah, dad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the kind of con- I, did, I did that. I did that just for you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, conversely, you could do other famous literary geniuses. You know, write like them. You, you could, you maybe Edgar Allan Poe. You could do at the drop of the hat. You could become like the Robin Williams or the Dana Carvey of writers. <laughs> 
Uh, it's a fun idea, and, I, and I've thought about what other writers' styles might I actually be able to imitate in that way. The thing about Shakespeare, though, is that he there's something about his style that is so sort of instantly recognizable. I mean, if you flip through the pages of one of my books, it looks like, I mean, it's a play, right? It, it looks like a, a work by Shakespeare. Um, and there are some words that we sort of associate with Shakespeare and... Doth. So, yeah, right, exactly. Forsooth, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, you know, the things that we all sort of say when we're trying to be Shakespeare-like, right? Uh, and so, in some ways, he is easier to imitate if you can do the iambic pentameter and literary devices and things like that. Easier to imitate than another author might be. Well, and a fitting place to end it being a Shakespeare podcast. It is not a Robin Williams or an Edgar Allan Poe podcast. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for the good times and for the conversation. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ian Desher holds a BA in music from Yale University, a Master's of Divinity from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Union Theological Seminary. He's best known as the author of the William Shakespeare's Star Wars series. His new books, William Shakespeare's Get Thee Back to the Future and William Shakespeare's Much Ado About Mean Girls, are the first in the new Pop Shakespeare series from Quirk Books. They were published in 2019. Ian Desher was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, What Imitation You Can Borrow, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Andrew Bates at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and from Ryan Mock, Kelsey Woods, and Laura Lee Stapleton at Digital One Studios in Portland, Oregon. I imagine you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If I'm right about that, and if you're looking for a way to let other people know about this podcast, there's an easy way to do it. Just leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face-to-face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director Michael Whitmore.